0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Hi, everybody. First thing I want to say is actually not for the people in this room, but for the people who are listening to this recording. If you're listening to just an audio recording of this, I would encourage you that we've actually synced up this audio with the slides that I'm running in a little video. So if you're listening to this and want to follow along it will be more meaningful if you can follow along the video and that's going to be at adventbirmingham.org/prayerbookclass2021 if you go there you'll be able to watch all these slides not me which i'm grateful for just the slides and you'll be able to follow along adventbirmingham.org/prayerbookclass2021 okay glad you're here today let's open in prayer Dear Lord, thank you so much for gathering us, and we ask that you would be pleased over these next three weeks to unveil why we worship the way we do in a meaningful way that actually changes the way we step into uh, the gathered worship of your people, the way we encounter your presence among us, the way we hear your word and your gospel. So give us all those things and more, Lord, and teach us now through your word alone and through Christ alone. Amen. Well, so we're beginning a journey for three weeks on why we worship the way we do, and hopefully it'll illuminate, because if you're new to this tradition or not, this is funny, I've taught this course before, and I had an 80-year-old Episcopalian who had grown up in the Episcopal church and the Anglican tradition his whole life. And after I taught this, he came up to me frustrated, and I thought, oh no, here we go, another pastoral encounter with an angry parishioner. And he just said, I'm frustrated that I didn't get this stuff earlier, and I didn't understand this because the moment I started getting it, it changed the way I encountered these words uh, and these liturgies and the way I worshiped with the people of God. So uh, that's what we hope really gets unlocked. I don't want this to be a head trip where you gain information about the liturgy. I'd much rather it actually help you to worship God better among us. So we've got two goals for this class. One is to help us better connect head and heart in the worship service. So Thomas Cranmer, I'll tell tell you a little bit more about him later, but Thomas Cranmer, a big hero of mine, an English reformer, and he helped architect the Book of Common Prayer. In his first preface to this, this is what he said was the purpose, that the people should continually profit more and more in the knowledge of God and be the more inflamed with the love of his true religion. Now imagine that that the goal of what he was trying to set forth with this Book of Common Prayer was passionate, fiery love of God. I don't know about you, but that's not what I tend to think about when I think about liturgical worship. But that was precisely his point. You know, he says, uh, I'm enough of a charismatic to believe that when I come and gather with the people of God, I expect to encounter him. And I want this book, this liturgy, these words, these prayers to help with that. So I want this course to help us better connect head and heart. Secondly, I want this course and any resources I give you, I don't want to share every detail about the liturgy. Don't want to go through all the symbolism and stuff like that. Cool as that is, what I want you to feel and know is, uh, is, is to be able to hear the gospel more clearly in worship. So to kind of cut through all the details and actually to hear the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done as a result of doing this. That's why we're here. Over these next three weeks, this is what we're going to do. We're going to kind of overview the Book of Common Prayer, both its heart and its theology and history a little bit today. Next week, we're going to blitz through the morning prayer liturgy. That's the one that we use alternating with Holy Communion at the Advent. And the third week, we're going to blitz through the Holy Communion liturgy, again, for the purpose of those two things, better connecting head and heart and hearing the gospel. I want to begin with two warnings. Um, These are both from Scripture and then followed up with Cranmer on Scripture. This first one, I read this verse recently, I thought, gosh, people in liturgical traditions especially always need to hear this. Isaiah 29, 13 to 14. Then the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people. That's not a good thing. Okay. When God's dealing marvelously with you, that's not a good thing. Wondrously marvelous. And the wisdom of their wise men will perish. And the discernment of their discerning men will be Concealed. This was recorded on February 7th. I'm just walking out of a worship service where I heard Andrew say much of the same thing, that God's really after their hearts. And wasn't it interesting, as Andrew was talking about that, that God was criticizing them, Israelites, for doing things in worship that he told them to do? Sacrifice to me, pay vows to me, all those sorts of things. And then God was saying, those are the very things I detest. The things that I ordained for you to do, I detest them. Why? because they're never supposed to be disconnected from your heart. And there's a warning in Scripture that downshifting liturgy into mere ritualism is going to kill you. And there always needs to be a kind of heart involved. Here's another warning from John 5, 37 to 40. I read this recently. It's just sort of jumped out at me from a different angle. Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, the Father who has sent himself bore witness about me. His voice... You have never heard. Remember, he's talking to the religious people. The people who are experts in the scriptures, right? His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You know, if the prayer book really is based in the Bible, which it is, praise God, it is what I sa- its purpose is what I said it was, which is to give you the gospel. And this is precisely what Jesus is saying here. You search the scriptures, you engage in your religious worship practices, but you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The only life you're ever going to find in liturgical worship, if you're going to find any, is in Christ. The only life you're going to find in the scriptures is hearing Christ out of them. A scriptural interpretation or a prayer book interpretation that doesn't land and end on Jesus Christ crucified and risen and ascended for you is not Christian and will not help you at all. And there's tons of warnings in scripture about what happens when we lose sight of that. Cranmer, in his 1544 litany, okay, we have to remember that in his day, in the 16th century, prior to what he did and the other English reformers did, people who spoke English as their native language didn't worship in their native tongue. And in fact, worship was in Latin, and the only people who could understand any words, if they could, because the priest didn't often speak very loud, the only people that could were the rich, educated people who knew Latin. So the rest of us would have been sitting there really not knowing what's going on. And so in Cranmer, translated this into English. Imagine what it's like to hear a worship service in your native tongue for the first time. Well, if you're a traditionalist, you're like, this is way out of control. There were massive rebellions in Devon and Cornwall, mocking the new liturgy because it was so different from tradition. They were so annoyed with it that not only did they take up arms and go to war over it, they called the New Liturgy a Christmas game. They're like, it's a little child's game you're trying to play. You, know? you have to say it in our language, not in the lofty, sacred, un- non-understandable Latin, but in this sort of dumbed-down contemporary language of English. You know, We hate that, but that was the sort of reaction to it. So the first thing Cranmer translates into English is way back in 1544, and it's this litany, which getting to you know it's that long prayer that sometimes we feel like we have to endure at the beginning of lent because it goes on forever it's super cool but you got to pay attention to it so when cranmer translates the litany he adds a little exhortation at the beginning of the litany and this is what he says god regards neither the sweet sound of our voice nor the great number of our words but the earnest ferventness and faithful devotion of our hearts we must be aware in our prayer of that common pestilent infection, you can see he feels strongly about it, and venomous poison of all good prayer, that is to say, when our mouth prays and our hearts pray not. We need to be aware of that when our mouth is doing things and our heart isn't connected there. So Cranmer agrees with scripture that it's kind of dangerous to get to a place where we're just saying these things without any heart behind them, right? I want to give you some history, and first I want to ask, who was Thomas Cranmer? Thomas Cranmer was a Cambridge Bible scholar who had a reputation for demanding rigor from his students, which means, you know, by the time he was teaching Bible, people were like, you don't want to take that prof. He's going to be hard on you. He's going to make you memorize, and he's going to make you answer tough questions about it. Uh, That's what he was known for. He was a bit of a nerd. He was reluctant. He didn't like the spotlight, actually. He was reluctantly appointed for a bunch of very funny reasons that he sort of slipped into being on King Henry VIII's radar, which you'd never want to be in Henry VIII's radar, especially the kind where you end up marrying him, because then you end up dying, right? He was reluctantly appointed the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1532, and then eventually had his consecration service in early 1533. He was martyred in Oxford in 1556. Burned at the stake by Bloody Mary for, I'll just say it this way, ultimately believing the gospel and preaching that gospel. My favorite description of him, though, is from Ashley Knoll. Uh, uh, he's a Cranmer scholar, my doctoral supervisor, uh, who pulled together some references about the eyewitness accounts from Cranmer's secretary named Ralph Morris. And so this is what Knoll summarizes Morris said. Despite the pressures of his office and his era, Cranmer's most striking characteristic was to forgive his enemies. He was determined not to hold a grudge against his many personal enemies, even when they came very, very close to bringing about his destruction in 1543. Read about that episode sometime. Indeed, Cranmer was notorious for not only pardoning those who had conspired against him, but even going so far as to do his best to advance their personal interests after they had apologized at least a little. As William Shakespeare had Henry VIII put it, do my Lord of Canterbury a shrewd turn, and he is your friend forever. Cranmer's habitual benevolence was not merely the naivete of an innocent in high office. Rather, his demonstrated love for those who opposed him was the conscious decision of a dedicated evangelist when criticized for being so lenient with his enemies, many of his friends busted his chops for how, how too kind he was to his enemies. Cranmer had this to say. This is a quote. What will ye have a man do to him that has not yet come to the knowledge of the truth of the gospel? Shall we perhaps in his journey coming towards us by severity and cruel behavior overthrow him and as it were in his viage stop him? I take not this way to allure men, to embrace the doctrine of the gospel. And if it be a true rule of our Savior Christ to do good for evil, then let such as are not yet come to favor our religion, learn to follow the doctrine of the gospel by our example in using them friendly and charitably. So Cranmer's forgiving of his enemies had to do with the fact that he was so arrested by God's own love for him that the only thing you could think to do, especially as an evangelist for the good news of Jesus Christ, to his enemies who opposed it, was to do the most radical thing ever, to return wounds with love, to offer forgiveness and even personal deference to someone who had wronged you. Imagine if the Christian community acted like this more often on Facebook (laughs) and elsewhere. You know, imagine if that were the case. That was the man, Thomas Cranmer. Why do we have a book of common prayer? I'm going to trace history really fast. First few centuries of the church, the early church and its liturgy. Now, we have to realize that the early church didn't sort of start from scratch with their worship practices just because Jesus came on the scene. We have to remember that Christianity was birthed out of Judaism, and it was birthed out of all the sort of practices and rituals and liturgy and development that God gave to the worshipers in the Old Testament. So by the time the first century rolls around and Jews are worshiping in the synagogue, you can believe, and it actually carries through to our liturgies this day, observable in the Book of Common Prayer, that some Jewish liturgical practices that were part of the synagogue, some things things like reading the scriptures and then preaching about it in that order, and other things like that, and using little responses here and there, made their way into the way the Christians, upon hearing about Messiah Jesus Christ, started worshiping. So it's kind of inherent in the idea that if they had these worship practices that were ultimately fulfilled in who Jesus is and what he's done, that they'd maintain those things and center them around Jesus. So that's the sort of beginning stages and some of the earliest things we notice in the documents we have about the way Christians worshiped in various arenas, was with these kinds of bare-bones liturgies, some of which are part of our liturgy today. The thing we said today in Holy Communion, uh, the Lord be with you and with thy spirit, lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. That is a very ancient practice of the church, uh, part of some of our earliest liturgies. And isn't it cool that we worship with them as we say those words together? Sometime a little bit after the 2nd century on into the 3rd and through the 15th, and gosh, that's a big swath of time, right? This is really the period of time, the medieval period, when the church was established, when the Edict of Milan uh, issued by Constantine came out legalizing Christianity, and it gave Christianity a foothold to sort of establish itself and flourish. So this is where you see the building of buildings and where you see these kind of bare-bones liturgies start to take on a life of their own travel from region to region, began to become more ornate and elaborate, until the time when you get to about the 15th or 16th century, when to be a priest leading a liturgy required you to have stacks of books to be able to do it. You had to have several books and be familiar with how to flip between them and go in them so that you could lead people in worship this way. Um, And you also had to be aware of all the rituals and practices and their symbology. And you had to be aware of how to use all the stuff inside your church building or your parish or your cathedral or wherever you were. So it was ornate and it was developed and liturgy was full and, and, and crowded, if you will. So what happens in the Reformation is aside from the doctrinal issues, there's just a desire to kind of pare all this down so it's a little bit easier and simple for a minister to lead people in worshiping God. So there were, there were several kind of drives for that that we'll get to a little bit later. But by the time of the Reformation, people began asking not only liturgical questions, but actually the relationship of why is the church pressing Christians to work so hard for their salvation? When i read my bible i don't see the connection there i actually see some disjunct and it's actually causing me to rethink all the the practices of worship that we do and maybe we need to reorient all those things so the reformation was a big time not only of doctrinal change but of liturgical revision because guess what when you have a certain view of how god saves you that's going to affect the way that you approach him in worship and when that view Is trying to be conformed to scripture, it's going to change those approaches. So you can better believe that there was liturgical reformation as much as there was doctrinal. And in fact, for the 16th century Christians, that dichotomy I just made between liturgical and doctrinal wasn't so precise. You know, liturgy and doctrine were kind of one whole of what it meant to be a a Christian. What were the English reformers doing when they were revising the liturgies? They were. Simplifying devotionally. So when the people of God gathered, they didn't want it to be so complex that your heart was more overwhelmed with all the things that you needed to say or do. But they wanted to simplify it. That's why in Cranmer, he uses this language in the preface to the Book of Common Prayer. We saw fit in all of England to gather us around Just one use of this thing. There were going to be multiple different liturgies floating out there depending on your region, whether you were in Hereford or whether you were in York or whether you were in London. We want to unite the realm and we want to simplify things devotionally for you. So that's a little bit easier. Translating linguistically, of course. So prior to this, liturgies were in Latin. And for the first time, they were in English. That's what common prayer means. It means for the common folk but it also means that it's common to us all so that we can pray together. They were transposing theologically. So they didn't just translate the Latin liturgies into English. They actually transposed them into, quote, evangelical keys. And by evangelical, I don't mean modern iterations of political ideologies. I mean gospel-centered, which is what the word evangelical, that's probably a wash nowadays. You probably shouldn't use it nowadays. That's what they meant when they talked about being an evangelical man, being someone centered around the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. And when they, when they were architecting the Book of Common Prayer, they were transposing the theology of the old liturgy into a gospel-centered key. If we were to trace the history of the Book of Common Prayer to us in the United States, these dates are important. Don't memorize them, but just look at them with me. In 1549, Cranmer issues with uh, the proclamation of the King, King Edward, because Henry had died, the first English prayer book, the first prayer book in English, crazy, monumental, shocking that this would happen, and it had all the reactions across the spectrum that you think would happen. some embraced it with love, others didn't. Some clergy loved it, some clergy hated it. I mean it was So polarized that Cranmer had to send kind of goons, not really goons, but emissaries from the archbishop's office to basically perform injunctions is what they were called. And we have documents of these injunctions, basically going to the priests of these local parishes and asking... Are you conforming to this aspect of the prayer book? And the, the questions are funny. Like, they're really funny, the things that they're asking about what they're doing. Like, are you making sure people aren't walking out during sermons? Because that was common. The people would just get up and sort of walk around during a lackluster sermon from a preacher, because they weren't that good in the medieval era anyway. Uh, are you making sure that? People aren't uh, venerating certain objects in the, in the sanctuary or nave or anywhere else. Are you making sure X, Y, and Z? And so uh, this prayer book comes out, and it kind of changes the landscape of things. This prayer book, Cranmer would view as a kind of halfway measure theologically. The 1549 prayer book was a little bit more strictly translated from the Latin, which means uh, it still had a lot of sort of Roman and Catholic-leaning Structures and words. Pay attention to that because it actually comes back into our history, this 1549 book. But shortly thereafter, Cranmer was already working on revision number two, and it got out of the gate in 1552, the second English prayer book. This was what we would call a way more thoroughly Protestant book. And by Protestant, I mean sort of gospel-centered in the sense of the structures and the words that often pressed believers in the service to pray and approach God as though they were earning a seat at the table or earning a way towards his pleasure or putting in before getting out his grace. Those things were excised from the 1552 liturgies a lot more than they were in the 1549 liturgies. Fast forward 100 years, Cranmer's martyred, and Queen Elizabeth's reigning for a long time. Then she goes, there's a period of, of English history called the Commonwealth when there was no king. And actually, the uh, prayer book was banned and made illegal. So this, this book that you and I worship with was at one time illegal. So if any of you are rebels, you should feel really good about being Anglicans, because it's super edgy, evidently, right? Well, when the monarchy was restored, one of the first things they did was to reinstate the 1552 prayer book in 1662 with very small revisions. So if you ever hear about the 1662 prayer book, which is still the legally binding prayer book of the Church of England in England, even though there have been revisions and things like that, the one that's the kind of sanctioned version is that one. Which means that it's still kind of largely what Cranmer and the Reformers had established and uh, thought was appropriate for English speakers but it's funny how stuff gets codified and made rigid when it wasn't the f- the founder's idea that we'd still be worshiping in Elizabethan English actually because Cranmer was all for contextualization in fact the original agenda of the prayer book was a missionary effort to make it more understandable to people so i think Cranmer would definitely have been pro prayer book revision But he would have been pro-prayer book revision, not of the theology, but of its accessibility, depending on the culture. Which is interesting, because what's funny is we've often kept the language of it static, but we've shifted the theology over time. Fast forward, I mean, you're starting to recognize, ooh, this is coming into the time when the colonies are around, where our land is being inhabited by these strange white people from Europe. And so by the time in 1776, when the Declaration of Independence happens, the, the folks who are here from the Church of England realize that they need to establish a, a national church that's definitely connected to the Church of England as part of the Anglican Communion. They didn't, wouldn't have called it that yet. That word Anglicans is kind of late to the game. But... They wanted to be connected, but they also wanted to understand that this was the expression of Anglicanism in the United States. So they're establishing the denomination of uh, the church that you and I are sitting in right now, the Episcopal Church in the United States. Um, And the first American prayer book rolls out. Now, this is interesting. You can imagine that tensions between the English and the Americans are high. And so if there are Anglicans here that are trying to establish a national church, Based on the polity, so based on the church governmental structures, a priest needs to be consecrated by an English bishop to be the sort of head presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church of the United States. They need approval. So a priest named Samuel Seabury, who kind of rose to the top of the heap, um, goes to England to seek out consecration from the English bishops, and none of them will do it, understandably. Uh, and so Seabury thinks, okay, wait, there's this enclave of the Church of England up in Scotland who don't really like all the English all the time. Maybe I can petition to them to consecrate me to be the one of the first bishops of the uh, Protestant Episcopal Church of the United States. So he goes up to Scotland. Well, the people in Scotland had their own version of a prayer book that looked a lot more like 1549 because of various movements of history that we'll get to in a second. Uh, They were more interested in kind of a Roman version of the Holy Communion service. So they said, "Okay, Samuel, if you want to be a consecrated bishop because we hold all the power, here's a deal we're going to strike with you. You have to establish a prayer book that's in line with ours, not the 1662, if you want our approval. And Samuel says, yes. So he signs on the dotted line becomes consecrated, comes back. And so the first Book of Common Prayer in the United States, of which ours is an ancestor, um, is established in a much more 1549 style, which means already from the get go, we're set on a course that was different from the gospel-centered agenda of the founding architect of the Book of Common Prayer. This is like crazy insider, like you've taken the red pill and you can never go back kind of stuff, Okay. 1928, if you're an Episcopalian, you know this. It's not that there weren't other revisions between here and there, but this is the one that was pretty big. Um, And if you're an old Episcopalian, which none of you are in this room, um, you will remember a time prior to 1979 when you worshiped with this book. But this was a, a major revision that was trying to bring some things up to date. Some sort of theological debates happened in the 1800s and early 1900s and pressed some things to the fore. For those who really wanted to see some prayer book change, it wasn't as strong as they wanted, but they got more of their jollies in 1979, the second major prayer book revision, which which is the current prayer book that we currently have, is the one in 79. And uh, for those who are around for that shift, it was kind of the same reaction that it was in England when Cranmer is- issued the 1549 and 1552 all across the board of Episcopalians liking it, not appreciating it because there was change, recognizing, hmm, there's something different being said that sounds like different theology. I'm sniffing out something different here. But that's a lay of the land. I want to brief- briefly give you a tension that exists in our tradition that I was bringing out when I was talking about these prayer books. In the 1500s, the founding of the Church of England was a gospel-centered Protestant vision. There were several movements within the Church of England, though, that really tried to press Church of England to reestablish more of its Roman roots. And these movements were, we, we're interested in some of the worship practices. We're interested in some of the garb. We're interested in the theology. We're interested in the ancientness of it. And so one of those movements was in the mid-1600s called Laudianism after Archbishop William Laud, whose theology was the opposite of the English reformers. He was more of what's called an Arminian. But he was also interested in some of the kind of Roman-leaning practices of the church. There's one more in between this one and the next one, but I'm jumping to the mid to late 1800s. I want you to think about these dates relative to our own parish, this church, this building that we stand in mid to late 1800s, was something called the Oxford and Tractarian movement, when a bunch of priests, ministers, and scholars in and around the Oxford area especially were really interested in recovering some of the ancient aspects of worship and theology that they felt like the reformers just blew to the side they're really interested in reconnecting with some of those things. So there are actually some marvelous gifts out of the Oxford and Tractarian movement. The fact that you and I sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel at Christmas, that's because of the movement here that recovered that ancient Latin text and translated it so well into English. A bunch of hymns that we sing are actually from this recovery, because there were some great poets who knew what to do in translating Latin to English. Praise God. But there was also an interest in downplaying the things that made the Reformation distinctive, the gospel centrality of it all. So there was a strong wave, and they had a lot of influence in Anglicanism. They had a lot of influence here. Okay, think with me through the fact. Uh, So they basically won the day. Anglicanism, both in England and the United States, was largely influenced by this wave of teaching and tracts and publications and, and thought of the Oxford Tractarian movement. So that by the end of the 1800s, Anglicanism looked way more Roman than it ever did. Prior to the Tractarian movement, you wouldn't see a bishop wearing a mitre. Prior to the Tractarian movement, you wouldn't have called any person who's wearing a collar like me, Father. You would have called him Mr. Hicks is what you'd call me. Prior to the Tractarian movement, you would have seen a much more simple robing for, uh, for ministers in the, in the church. We would have been wearing a cassock and a surplice. But uh, we certainly wouldn't have been wearing the Roman sort of sacrificial garbs of uh, copes and chasubles and things like that, if you know what those are. I could say a lot more about what's different about Anglicanism. But all those things that seem so Anglican about us now actually weren't necessarily native for a long time. Uh, And so that's a bit of a red pill moment too, right? That some of these things that we think are so old and traditional are actually Actually, post Reformation, pretty new comparatively. But you think about the late 1800s, when was our building built? Our building was built in 1873, it burned, and then was rebuilt in 1883 and 1885. That's at the height of the Oxford and Tractarian movement. That's at the height of when the Episcopal Church was really influenced by that. So, guess, um, this is just fact. Guess what persuasion of an architect was hired to build our building. The architect who designed our building was a Roman Catholic architect. And there are many things about our space. We don't have time to sort of digest a theology of architecture. There are many things about our space that are very Roman. When this was first built, the table was where it was real high. And up against the wall, you actually couldn't step behind it. It was only pulled out in the later 1900s by one of our deans. the pulpit was off to the side, as it is, you know, and the center of attention, the chancel actually looked even uh, kind of more walled off because this original wooden area uh, that extended the chancel out wasn't there, so it looked like there was a bit of a more, if you know this language, a rude screen barrier between the sort of nave, the inside, and the chancel. Those are just a few things, but there's lots more things I could say. So if architecture preaches, it it sort of tells us something about the theological air of the day in the Episcopal Church. you know. And architecture is hard to move and change, right? So anyway, I just wanted to point that out. I want to go now on to the theology of the prayer book. The central question being asked in the Reformation was, how are people changed? How do people actually change? How are people transformed such that they actually follow God? and do what he says. That's what the argument was, ultimately, between Protestants, the Protestants and the Roman Catholics was, how do people actually do what God wants them to do? Um, and they offered different answers. The answer of the Reformation was, when we read our Bible, people are changed by a work of God in the heart. In the heart. And how does God do this work? How does God change your heart? He does it through his word particularly the word in the word that it, the word drives toward, the gospel. So God changes hearts through the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is what actually transformed my heart to cause me to desire to do what God wants me to do. So the driving force behind the Reformation, and therefore the driving horse behind a Reformation understanding of worship, can be summarized in this statement. The word of God births faith. If I am to have a faith that produces good works, it's the word of God that does that. It is not a priest telling me to fulfill certain obligations of the sacramental system. It's a Christian telling me God's word so that, and particularly the word about Jesus, so that my heart is transformed into a desiring God's law kind of heart rather than opposing God's law kind of heart. And this is a perpetual thing that a Christian needs, according to Paul, because the flesh remains and the flesh constantly needs to be told by the word of God, hey, by the way, you forgot you're dead and you need Jesus. And then the engine of Jesus and the Holy Spirit revs up and goes to work on the flesh. And here Jesus says, so the word of God births faith is kind of the driving force behind this. This is the way of thinking about it. And here's a more fancy-dancy diagram God, his word comes down to us, and it is one way. God reveals when he gives us his word, when he gives us Jesus Christ, our response is faith. That's what we give back to God is, I trust your word. I believe your word is true. And then from that flow, love of God, worship of God, and love of neighbor, right? That's kind of the scheme there. Hebrews 412 to 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I want to focus our attention on a few phrases in this, and I want to ask if they're reminiscent of anything. The Word of God is living and active. They pierce the division of soul and spirit, but here it is. They discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the Word of God is actually an organism in a way that comes at you and discerns you, dissects you, discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature, none of you, none, none of me, is hidden from the sight of the living and active Word. So if we're thinking about reading my Bible It's actually more than my Bible reads me when I read it. And that the Spirit comes and starts doing some digging. Now, listening to these lines, thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden, what does that sound like? Does that sound like anything in our liturgy? Do you recall it from just an hour ago at the beginning of the service? Amen. Amen. The collect for purity. Almighty God, unto whom all heart... This is how the communion service begins. Almighty God, unto whom... All hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. And there you have the vision for worship, according to Cranmer, is nothing less than open heart surgery. You know, when you come to worship and to encounter the living God, God is interested in sawing open your spiritual sternum, ripping back all that bone, and getting to that very fleshly and vulnerable part of you that is your heart. Speaking to its wounds, saying, that's hurt. That's dying. That's dead. That needs me. Worship is supposed to be an extremely sort of powerful encounter with the living God because that's the way the word of God works. And Cranmer's sort of outlining this in his Hebrews 4 theology of worship moment at the beginning of the service. It was a prayer that priests prayed prior to the Reformation, but they prayed it privately to themselves as they prepared for Holy Communion. Cranmer gives it to everybody to hear and to pray in their hearts precisely because he wants us to be clear that what is God doing? He's sending forth his word to do things to us. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's probably the one-stop shop verse that tells us what we were trying to say about the Reformation understanding of what is going on in a worship service. The word of God births faith. If I'm going to Believe God, trust in Him. I need His Word to be declared to me and to tell me who I am and who I'm not. Right? So, just as a final exercise, a little bit, I want to relook at this diagram the Word of God coming down to us, births, faith. And I want to actually tease out, if you've been worshiping with morning prayer and Holy Communion, how this cycle happens again and again in a worship service, where the word of God is coming at us, and from us comes faith. And you're going to see this, and hopefully this will give you some eyes and ears to hear the gospel more clearly and to allow God to sort of do that work on you with a little bit more sensitivity. So for instance, we have the scripture cycle in our worship service, meaning like, well, right now during COVID, we're only reading one passage. But normally, if you've been here before, you've been used to us reading. Old Testament reading, a psalm, a New Testament reading, gospel, those kinds of things. What happens in both Holy Communion and morning prayer after the scripture cycle and preaching? What, what is the next thing that believers do? Do you know what it is? What do we say in response? We confess our faith in the Creed, two for two. Um, yes. And what does the Creed begin with? I believe, I faith. So the word of God comes at us. It does things to us. And what's the response? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ. So out from us springs this, oh, in response to the word of God coming at me, I believe. How about this one? The sermon, what do we do after the sermon? What's the next thing that happens after a sermon? Anybody know? It is the creed, right? Because it's usually part of the scripture cycle. That's right. In the communion service, in the uh, in, in morning prayer, which is a little tricky because we like do both, so it's like, which one's which, right? We offer ourselves to God. We give of our money as a way of saying, I give my whole self to you. That's what faith looks like, is I lay myself down as a living sacrifice. The sermon to the offertory is kind of like the whole structure of the book of Romans in a nutshell. Romans 1 through 11, sermon. Romans 12 and on, Offertory, right? Where I give myself back to God. How about this one? In morning prayer, after the declaration of forgiveness, after the minister says, do you know what we say after this? Does anybody know? We say, O Lord, open thou our lips, because guess what? Dead in my trespasses and sins, my lips have been closed. Open thou our lips, and our mouths shall show forth thy praise. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. And then we sing a hymn. Why? Because worship, glorifying God, is a faith-filled activity that only rightly flows in response to the fact that God's word came at us and told us, forgiven, Say, It's the resurrection moment. It's also why we stand. Because there's kind of a sense of, in Christ, I rise up from my sin and brokenness to newness of life. And what is there left for the creature to do but simply to go, God, I praise you and glorify you, right? How about... The declaration of pardon and the comfortable words in the Holy Communion liturgy. The word of God comes at us. What's the next thing that we do after we say the final bits of, of that? Does anyone know? The peace. The peace of the Lord be always with you. And, with, and this is an interesting other dimension that was actually added in the 79 prayer book that I really like, which is we, we're encouraged to shake one another's hands, which freaked out Episcopalians in the 79 because we were used to not touching each other or talking to each other until that moment. And yep, there was like Devon Cornwall-style rebellion against this aspect of the prayer book. But it's a beautiful uh, illustration and movement that after I hear this good news, I in turn am not only reconciled to God, but I demonstrate total horizontal reconciliation with other people through shaking of hands and through passing the peace, which means if, if everything between me and God's all good, I really don't have grounds for any kind of grudge against anybody on this planet. I'm free to be a full-blown agent of reconciliation. And that's embodied in the simple thing where we go, peace, 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 peace. I mean, it's supposed to be like this magical redemption moment where we get, oh, I'm designed to be a, a harbinger of peace to other people. That's kind of the richness of that moment. How about this one? The Lord's prayer in morning prayer and then the suffrages. Those are, are, the Lord's prayer and suffrages are all scripture. There's nothing in them that's composed by, you know, a person apart from the person who is inspired by the word of God. The Lord's prayer, of course, is in Matthew. And then suffrages are various statements, mostly from the Psalms, or these bullet points. What happens after that? We respond with sort of our own composed prayers. collects, our prayers of intercession, and thanksgiving. So there's even a cycle within that set of prayers that's meant to give us the word of God and then cause us to respond in faith. When we receive communion, according to the Reformers and Paul, that was a way that the Word of God comes at you and reminds you of who Jesus is and what he's done. What do we do after communion? We pray a post-communion prayer that offers faith-filled response of, we give you humble and hearty thanks. And sometimes we pray this prayer during Lent and Advent. Here we present to you Ourselves, our souls and bodies to be an offering. So it's another place where in response to the word of God saying, I love you, I'm for you, this is for you, my body and my blood have been broken and shed for you. What's there left for you to do but to say, Lord, assist me with your grace so that I might live out from here on a godly, righteous, and sober life and bless this world, right? That's the, that's the idea there. So the heart of the book of common prayer is to unleash the word of God to convert your heart perpetually through the power of the gospel. That's the goal of a worship service. It should be the goal of every Christian worship service. Sometimes it's harder to hear that, but it definitely was the goal of the Book of Common Prayer as it was established. And that's as your canon for liturgy and worship. My hope for you and for me is that this word is unleashed and that God, by the power of His Spirit, gives us ears to hear this word coming at us 10,000 times to sort of just churn up our need to do this open heart surgery so that on the other side of this, we are people who are um, changed and ready to love God and love others again, established in our identity. You know, we come to a worship service to actually remember who we are because the reality is Monday through Saturday, our sin, the world, and the devil have all, been working actively to make you and me forget. And so we come and gather to remember who we are and try to live out of that reality lives of worship Monday through Saturday. That's the beauty of something that is fixed, that gets us to this repentance and this perpetual sort of cycle. That's one of the reasons why we do the same thing, because when you gather, there really isn't anything else for a Christian to do but to repent and believe the gospel And it's funny that churches have incorporated all sorts of other things to do in a Sunday service besides that when that's the one thing we really need to know who we are in Christ. So God help us, right? We need that centering. We need that word to come at us and teach us and and transform us. So that's all for today. We'll see you next week for morning prayer. Peace.